Welcome to worship from Jessup First United Methodist Church. I'm Rebecca Duke Barton, the pastor, and I am so glad that you've joined us. We are reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and that takes up three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the second half of chapter five, and so we're going to read part of it out loud. But let me suggest that you get out your Bible if you're in a place that you can, and keep it open throughout the sermon as we walk through Jesus's teachings about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven. We're going to back up just a bit and read part of what we read last week to remind us about what Jesus teaches when he's speaking to his followers that we are the light of the world. I heard Brent Strong give a, a sermon. Um, he's a professor at Emory. And so he gave a sermon on the laws in Leviticus. And he said that the laws were intended as a calling for Israelites to live differently in the world so that others might see the way that they live and give glory to God. And I think when we come to this part of the Sermon on the Mount, what I see is that Jesus is giving us that same calling. He brings in laws from Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And he says that we're called to live as salt and light, as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And so he opens up those teachings, those laws, and shows us what it has always meant to live in the heart of God. So Garth is going to read to us from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, beginning with the 14th verse. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And now, continuing on with the Law and the Prophets with Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Law or the Prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the Law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Continuing on through verse 43, it says this, Love enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I remember being in the second grade and going to my friend Tony's eighth birthday party. I lived in Brooklyn, Georgia when I was eight, and Tony lived out on a farm, and he had invited the whole class for a hayride. It was the days before anybody had ever heard of a car seat or even really a seat belt. And the hayride was on a flatbed with bales of hay. 
no signs. I don't even know if the bales were strapped down. Kids were sitting, dangling their feet off the side, horsing around as second graders will do. Now, this is not one of those stories where we laugh about the things that we used to do and say, see, we all turned out fine riding with eight children in the back seat of a car or baby in mama's lap. Something bad did happen. The birthday boy fell off the hayride and the trailer ran over his arm. Huh, what a birthday. Now, my parents were ahead of the curve in worrying about such things. And one of the rules in our house was that you could not ride down the road in the back of a pickup truck. They could see danger signs flashing everywhere. So when Tony fell off the hayride and broke his arm, his dad wanted to be able to drive faster to get him back to the house. So he told the kids to get in the back of the pickup truck, which at least had sides. But I knew my family rule and I was a rule follower and I was not going to get in the back of the pickup truck because I had been told not to ride in the back of a pickup truck and I would not budge. So there I rode on an open flatbed that somebody had already fallen off and it was going even faster than when Tony fell off. My parents had made a rule that was intended to keep me safe and I was following it but I had completely missed the point. You might call it following the letter of the law, but missing the spirit of the law, which is where we find ourselves today in reading the Sermon on the Mount. God gave laws to Moses on a mountain, by the way, and it seems that Matthew wants us to see that Jesus on the mountain teaching echoes the story of Moses. It's helpful to know that teaching and law are the same word in Hebrew, Torah. So Jesus is sitting on a mountain teaching about the teachings that God has already given. I want to say that I'm particularly indebted in this sermon to N.T. Wright's book, Matthew for Everyone, and Amy Jill Levine's book on the Sermon on the Mount. She's a New Testament professor at Vanderbilt, and she's Jewish, so she always brings an interesting perspective to the New Testament. So let's dive in to these teachings about the Torah that Jesus brought. We'll begin in verse 17 here. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, that's actually an amen right there. Amen, I tell you. It doesn't mean like the end, like a period on the end of a prayer or something. Amen means this has my full agreement. And so when Jesus says amen, we really should listen to what he's about to say. So he says, amen, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. A.J. Levine says, when Jesus speaks about fulfilling the Torah, he signals that he's drawing out its full implications. He's not just giving a law, and he's certainly not reversing the law, but he's explaining what it looks like if we live fully in the law and teaching of God. If we live in the way that God intended, this is what it looks like. So Jesus didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament, but instead to help us see God's teaching for our lives. God had called his people to be the light of the world so that people walking in darkness could find their way home. Jesus saw Jerusalem, a city set on a hill, that it was supposed to be a beacon of hope for the world. And that by following the unique set of laws, these laws that would stand out, 
that actions would always point to the one God, the creator, the God of Israel. And so Jesus makes it clear that he is teaching what the law has always taught. He's teaching us to be the light of the world, not just keeping the letter of the law, but fulfilling the spirit of what the law brings. So let's look at some of the things that Jesus talked about. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. For Jesus, that's the starting point. That's the basic principle. But then he extends it out even farther because God cares about life, because God cares about our human dignity. It, it's not just that you don't murder somebody, but if you're living in the kingdom, then then it's it's more than just not murdering. It's that you don't let yourself get so angry you wish someone were dead. I, I mean, we've all heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But the truth of the matter is we've all been hurt by words and Jesus knew it. And he calls on his disciples to cut out the name calling, cut out the insulting that's so prevalent still in the world. Jesus explains that when we let anger take over, we're in danger of judgment. The way we talk about anger so often sounds like it's out of our control. He made me so angry. But the truth of the matter is anger is your own response to what someone else has done or said. So Jesus carries it further. If we let our anger take over us, take over the way we feel, take over our actions, we might be judged in court. And before you know it, anger has taken over. We're no longer the city set on the hill. We're no longer the light of the world. We're just a burning trash pile, Gehenna, that's right outside the city of Jerusalem. So if we're to be the light of the world, we've got to deal with our anger. In that same section, as part of this discussion about do not murder, that's the teaching, Jesus extends the idea that we need to be reconciled. He even puts reconciliation before worship. He imagines coming into the temple, buying an animal to be sacrificed. But as you approach the presence of the holy God, you remember the conflict that you have. And so you leave that live animal and go home. That's got to be an exciting thing in the temple. You go and you say you're sorry and you reconcile and then you return to worship. I think the point is you can't approach the God who is love full of anger and hate in your heart. It's part of why we have the passing of the peace as part of our communion ritual, because we're reconciled to one another as we come before God. Jesus then went on to talk about covenant relationships, marriage in particular, in Matthew 5, 27 through 32. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, Jesus extends the teaching. He builds a hedge around the Torah. That's how the rabbis would talk about it. One way to be sure that you don't commit adultery is not to let lust grow in your heart in the first place. So Jesus says, if your right eye offends, you pluck it out. That's hyperbole, of course. I don't think Jesus is really saying physically pull out your eye. But it's exaggerated for a point because Jesus is saying that 
that we need to get away from the things that might tempt us away from the covenant relationships that God means for us. We pray, lead us not into temptation in the Lord's prayer, but some of us go running headlong into it. When Jesus says to take the things that that tempt us, we need to take them entirely out of our lives. So take that app off your phone. Move if you have to. Get a new job. Get away. Don't let lust grow in your heart. If we're the light of the world, we are an example of faithfulness. It's why Jesus isn't permissive about divorce either, except in cases of unchastity, unfaithfulness is what most of our English translations say. I learned from Amy Jill Levine that um, the same phrase is um, is in Deuteronomy and described as um, what you do when you're digging trenches for a latrine. So, so it's, it's saying you, you don't deserve to be treated like garbage. That's not a faithful marriage. That's not a loving marriage. But what Jesus is saying is this is a call to love, to kindness, to faithfulness from both partners in a marriage. Faithfulness is the heart of living as the light of the world. You notice this pattern. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So in verse 33, Jesus moves on to swearing oaths and truth telling. And he actually tells us not to swear oaths. You know, I remember in that same second grade class, somebody would occasionally run up to me and grab my hand and place their palm on my palm and make a statement like I was a Bible and they were swearing on my hand. This is what it's like to grow up as a preacher's kid, y'all. Delmer Chilton of Two Bubbles in a Bible says he wore a clerical collar to court one time, but he wouldn't put his hand on the Bible. And when the judge asked why, he said his word was enough. That's what he had learned from Jesus. So Jesus is holding up telling the truth as the way that we shine the light and that we'd be so known for our truthfulness that you wouldn't even need to swear by something else. Jesus continues on with the pattern in verse 38. You have heard it said to you, I say to you. So Jesus talks about a law from Exodus about retaliation, an eye for an eye. Let me point out to you that although this is often read as encouraging retaliation, it actually already limits how, what kind of vengeance you can get. If you knock out my tooth, I'm not allowed to kill your whole family as payback. So the rabbis take it to mean that you work out a way to compensate for harm that you've done to somebody else. It's already the first step of living as the light of the world. So Jesus is thinking along those same lines when he says, but I say to you, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn and let them hit you on the left. If someone wants your cloak, give them your shirt too. You see, in the kingdom of God, Jesus is getting rid of revenge entirely. But he still provides a way to keep your own dignity. I read this week, too late to cover in last week's Beatitudes, that rather than reading blessed are the meek, we might say blessed are the gentle. That's a fruit of the spirit. Christians are gentle. We we speak gently. We're, we're gentle with one another. We don't lash out in anger. We don't retaliate. But we're also not doormats. 
we're not vengeful, but we don't ignore injustice. Jesus gives a third way of living with turn the other cheek. N.T. Wright explains that hitting someone on the right cheek was probably done with the back of the hand, kind of an insult, a way of saying, you're lower than I am. You're not as important as I am. But if you turn the other cheek and a right-handed person is trying to slap you, I live with a lefty, so I know not the whole world is right-handed, but just go with me on this. If you, if you turn the other cheek and they have to slap you, you're really pointing out how egregious this treatment is. It's not hitting back and escalating the situation, but it's also not cowering. It's a way of taking back dignity in court, in carrying burdens for Roman soldiers. It all shows the world in a dramatic fashion that there is a different way to live as the light of the world. So now we come to the last section for today's reading, 543. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. This is getting hard, Jesus. I can love my family. I can love my friends. I can even manage to love my neighbors. But love my enemies? That's too much. Jesus is actually in keeping with the heart of the teaching of the Old Testament here, too. Here are a couple of things from Proverbs. Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And from Proverbs 24, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. We can see it here in Love Your Enemies that Jesus is showing us the heart of God. Jesus is showing us what it was always like, what God always meant when we're the light of the world, when we're a city set on a hill, when the kingdom of God is breaking in. We really do love our enemies. We really do pray for those who persecute us because we want to be the children of the Father in heaven. It's easy to dismiss what Jesus taught, especially that last line, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We figure we can't be perfect, so we don't even try. We don't want to turn the other cheek and display the fruit of self-control over our anger. We might even try and dig around to find places in Scripture that give us permission to fight back and hate our enemies. But what the Sermon on the Mount shows us is that Jesus came to fulfill what God had always meant and to teach us how to live as light in the world but he not only taught it, he lived it. When they mocked him, he loved them. When Peter cut off the ear of a Roman soldier, Jesus healed the ear. When they hit him, he turned the other cheek. When they put a heavy piece of Roman war equipment on him and asked him to carry his own cross, Jesus carried it. He was the light of the world crucified on a hill for all the world to see. And he became a beacon of hope for new life and a new way of living. He showed the way of love, the kingdom of heaven on earth, that truly is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Amen.
and amen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. May your light shine through us. It seems so often that we're pulled into anger, revenge, unfaithfulness, lies, and forming enemies. Forgive us, Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us so that we live lives full of peace and love, truth and gentleness. Help us even to love our enemies. We put our trust in you. We put our lives in your hand. Make us true children of the Father. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.